This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. And welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis. I'm the host of Radio National Drive and Afternoon Briefing on the ABC News Channel. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast, coming to you from my lounge room because we're in lockdown in New South Wales and much of the country, of course. Soon we're going to be joined by Jennifer Hewitt, the National Affairs Columnist with the Australian Financial Review. She's joining the party to talk about a lot of things, really, including the coalition government's car park rorts. That was a really big story that sort of got drowned out by the um, serial lockdowns this week. And also AstraZeneca, of course, because PK, it seems to me, that's all anybody's talking about this week since the Prime Minister told the nation in a late-night press conference earlier in the week it was now OK for young Australians, for everyone in fact, including people under the age of 40, to get the AstraZeneca vaccine as long as they discussed it with the GP first. Here's Scott Morrison zooming in from the lodge after National Cabinet on Monday. But the advice does not preclude persons under 60 from getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so if you wish to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, then we would encourage you to, A, go and have that discussion uh, with your GP. If you wish to get it, we encourage you to have that discussion. The AMA, the day after, described that as a grenade being thrown into the vaccination debate. The number of the states, well, they were surprised to say the least. Many of them insisting they're going to stick to the advice from the Expert Committee on Vaccines. That's a group called ATAGI, the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, but I'm going to stick to ATAGI. Mm-hmm. Um, and that advice is that young people should preferably have the Pfizer vaccine and should not be receiving AstraZeneca unless they're are, quote, pressing circumstances. And that was the advice that fired up Queensland's Chief Health Officer, Jeanette Young. She's sticking to it. I don't want an 18-year-old in Queensland dying from a clotting um, illness who, if they got COVID, probably wouldn't die. And wouldn't it be terrible that our first 18-year-old in Queensland who dies related to this pandemic died because of the vaccine? A lot of people, a lot of medicos, politicians, commentators thought that response was completely out of line. PK, what did you think? I thought it was out of line, Fran, I'll be honest. Not on the technical issue, which is she saying on the risk analysis, right? And we know she is backed by ATAGI that they've decided based on the current risk of COVID-19 with our small breakouts, because we do have small breakouts, that their analysis is that that vaccine is right now not worth it. That's not to say they wouldn't revisit it if we had a much bigger outbreak and that the risk analysis changed. But through using the form of words she used, and words are like bullets, she has painted, I think, a scenario which, and I don't think this is necessarily her intention, but I think she's done a very good job, and I don't mean to reflect on her, but that particular form of language was fear-mongering in my view, and I think it has broader implications for 
the vaccine rollout for the AstraZeneca vaccine and it troubled me that that kind of description was used. Now, Fran, this has become too politicised, right? It's disturbingly politicised. It makes me deeply uncomfortable that it's become so politicised and I'm actually really glad that Atagi has come out now to, to clarify that they don't think it's the preferred vaccine for under 60s. But still, of course, you can see your doctor if you want it. And in small cases, I think that was the language used, a small number of cases that perhaps people under 40 would get AstraZeneca, right? That That's the official medical advice based mm. on our risk assessment for our nation as it stands today. Because the thing about a pandemic is things can change rapidly, as we've seen. So I think that's the position. I think Morrison, Scott Morrison's captain's approach to AstraZeneca was very misguided, but equally the response we saw from Queensland in particular, but also WA, I think was extremist and did not involve the kind of nuance you need to be using in a time, I think, of great crisis where people are greatly anxious, where vaccine hesitancy is a very big issue. And I think that that matters. I think language really matters. And what you want is people to be singing from the same song sheet. And that song sheet has to be medical advice, but equally medical advice described clearly. It's not hard to describe. What the Prime Minister did indemnifying doctors was not the wrong decision. It's the way he framed it, which is, you know, basically that word encouraging. You don't encourage. You say it is an option and it's entirely up to the doctor to make that risk assessment with you. That's right. I mean, if it is, I agree with you. I think language is important. Um, so is proportionality. And I think the, the sort of amount of fear that was prompted by the, the Chief Health Officer's comments in Queensland was disproportionate. It is important to say that, you know, AstraZeneca vaccine is by and large a very safe vaccine in Australia at the moment. 64 people only out of 4.2 million doses of AstraZeneca administered have had the clotting problem, the TTS, to have died. That's a risk around three in one. 100,000. Now that risk is 2.6 per 100,000 if you're under 60, 1.6 per 100,000 if you're over 60. So it's very small, vanishingly small, as Nick Coatsworth, the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer, put it. So we've all been distracted in a sense by the risk, but it's the change in language. Language are bullets, as you say. Why did the Prime Minister on Monday night, without the states having a heads up that this was going to happen, come out and say, if you wish to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and you're under 60, we would encourage you to do so. Why? I mean, the AMA, I spoke to Chris Moy, the Vice President, he came out and said the restrictions have been removed. So they think the restrictions were there and they've been changed by this this commentary from the federal government. And yet the health minister, Greg Hunt, tells us the advice hasn't changed, the medical advice. So I, I'm confused, but I think the issue is why did the prime minister do it? What did he think he was doing? Why didn't he give the states the heads up? And um, sort of that goes to the politics of it. But the impact of it, I agree with you, is really troubling because it's led to a lot of confusion, a lot of questioning about the health advice that's only going to make people more confused, more reluctant and less trustworthy. And I think that is a problem. Huge problem. And the Prime Minister... I think, mismanaged this. I think he did. The way that he communicated this was flawed. Not but what getting... was he trying to manage? Was I'll he tell you what to... he was trying to manage. He doesn't have enough Pfizer. Let's just yeah, be really right. honest about it. He doesn't have enough vaccines. 
you know, he's obviously frustrated by the advice. Our right? rollout is slow. Not enough people are being vaccinated because we don't have the supplies. Fran, right? We've got the AstraZeneca jab. It's all there. Why don't people just take Correct. it? So and he- we make it here. It's so much easier. He wants to get jabs in arms. That's what this is all about. At the same time, it didn't come out of nowhere. We know doctors have been lobbying furiously for this indemnity. So, and, and all of that's to be clarified, still all the detail of that. But that is a good thing. I really stand by that. It is a good thing that doctors are indemnified so that um, some people who want to take this risk and talk about it with their doctor and there is other reasons, you know, all the reasons, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, can make that assessment and that the doctor is not worried about the consequences of that because the state has stepped in. I think that that's a good thing. Well, it's good for the patient too because if the patient knows there's there's an indemnity scheme, therefore they won't be left high and dry as the doctor fights it. You know, people are going to feel more confident too of taking a risk perhaps. That's what you do, right? It's a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, you know, anyone who's had an operation knows they tell you in, you know, this percent of cases this might happen to you. You make an assessment every time that you engage in any sort of medical act. You know, you, you have to weigh up the risk. There is always a risk. Uh, there's very, you know, few things you can do without any risk at all. So that's what happens here. What the Prime Minister needs, this is, and that's where the politics is, he is really struggling because his vaccine rollout has been a schmozzle and it has been a schmozzle. So he needs more jabs in arms. There is this great vaccine, which we know to be effective, that he would like to get into more arms. And so he's made it easier for that to happen. Now, we know already that that young people are taking that up. I know many young people who want their freedoms, who are really pro-vaccination, who have signed up, asked their doctor and already been jabbed with the AstraZeneca jab because of this, this indemnity announcement. But... Ultimately, the health advice is the health advice and the problem with the way that the Prime Minister communicated this, Fran, is that the implication, he didn't say it to be fair to him, but the implication, uh, right, the way it was sort of um, shared with the public was that somehow there had been a shift. That's how I interpreted it till I studied the detail. I thought, oh, there's been a shift again. But there hasn't been a shift. The only shift has been because it was always, you could always have the discussion with your doctor. It's just whether your doctor really felt like comfortable going there because mm. of the lack of this coverage. It didn't It didn't preclude. It's called the preferred vaccine. It's preferred for this age group. Doesn't mean it's exclusively the only option, that there's a ban on the other one. There's never been a ban on the other one. It's just been more difficult to get because of its risk. Yeah. So in other words, the Prime Minister had a political problem that was also part of a burgeoning health problem because more and more states are locking down as the Delta variant's getting out and about. He wanted to do something about it and the way he did it looked like he was being sort of tricky, really, with his language because he hadn't come clean with the state premiers in the hours before. That seems to have been the problem. Absolutely. On that note, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Jennifer Hewitt is the National Affairs Columnist for the Australian Financial Review and our guest in the party room. Welcome. Good to be here. Jennifer, so nice to have you. So glad you're not in lockdown at the moment. You're in Victoria. The political divides, Jennifer, between state and territory governments and the federal government 
seem to be widening by the day. We've got a number of states and territories in some form of lockdown or restrictions. We've got the premiers blaming slow vaccination rollout on the federal government. We've got the federal government pointing the finger at breaches of hotel quarantine, particularly so for Queensland. It's just blame at 50 paces at the moment. So why don't we fling some around too? Who do you think is to blame for this current confusion around the rollout of AstraZeneca? Well, unfortunately, we can't just pick on one uh, guilty party uh, because there is so much blame to go around uh, between the state and uh, and federal governments. And um, unfortunately, that's going to continue because when things are going well, of course, every politician likes to claim credit for themselves. And when things are going badly, they always love to blame others. And I think you're seeing this very, very clearly in what's happening with both the state governments and the federal government. And frankly, all other Australians should be incredibly disappointed Pointed, if not angry, uh, about how we've got into ourselves into such a mess. Yeah, look, that's right. I, th- I couldn't agree more, Jennifer. I do think it's there's you know column A, column B in terms of the way this has been handled. But let's be clear about one thing. It is the federal government that's responsible for the vaccine rollout. And the Prime Minister kicked this off on Monday night, but hasn't been out and about to clarify the confusion. And when I say out and about, I know you're still quarantined. I don't mean physically. I mean out there with a clear message. As we record this, he's he's still in quarantine. I'm recording this Thursday morning. But do we need to hear from him on this, given Atagi has now come out and said, no, it is not our preference that you take... AstraZeneca if you're under 60. And yet he said, I encourage you to go to your GPs. He's he's actually sent what sounds to me like a different message to the one that Atagi is sending. Well, look, it is sending a somewhat different message to the one that Atagi is sending. But that's because, you know, we're in this position because we don't have enough Pfizer, which is the vaccine, of course, that everybody wants. And so the government was kind of trying to get back out under from that. But in a, in a sense, you've also got this idea that somehow medical advice, whether it's from Atagi or whether it's from chief medical officers or state uh, bureaucrats, that somehow this is all monolithic and infallible. In fact, advice is the medical advice is based on interpretation, opinion, lots of discretion. And therefore, what's happened now is that because things have gone so badly wrong, particularly with the lack of vaccine uh, alternative to AstraZeneca, is that this has become obvious and the government's trying to, in a sense, look, it's not quite as black and white as saying, oh, the government's urging everybody to rush out and get AstraZeneca if they're under 40. They're not, but they're saying, as in fact has always been the advice, oh, well, look, Pfizer is preferred, but you could always talk to your your local GP. But it's no wonder people are confused because this has been all over the place. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder for sure because the PM didn't actually say, oh, well, you know, Pfizer's preferred for people under 60. He actually said... If you wish to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and you're under 60, we encourage you to do it. So it seemed to be a change. And you're right about the health advice. Suddenly we're all saying, well, the, all the premiers are saying, well, we're sticking to the Atagi advice. And, and, and it's, not, it's not monolithic, as you say, except up until this point, the federal government and federal ministers from the Prime Minister down have answered so many questions with, well, you know, it's the health advice, we're acting on the health advice, without any transparency around that health advice. And there's been some criticism from, you know, epidemiologists and others about that, like what is that health advice and we haven't seen it. And now we are seeing the health advice and the Prime Minister seems to be a little bit at odds with it. 
Well, the thing is, health advice varies from state to state and country to country. Um, mm. So, for example, in the UK, you've got you know anybody uh, mm. who can exactly uh, uh, over forty is encouraged very encouraged to take AstraZeneca to great effect and, you know, with the result that they're opening up. In Germany, it's over 18. Here we've had 40, 50, 60. This advice is, you know, it's just very discretionary and, and we kind of actually got to acknowledge that. But the point is that politicians have actually used this as a crutch um, mm. over, over many, many months to kind of defend their own decisions, which can vary, as we've known, from state to state or whatever. And so they therefore say New South Wales has got the best advice, Queensland's got the best advice or whatever. And yeah. really, in the end, it comes down to leadership, political leadership, which requires taking a whole lot of things into account, including different versions of medical advice. And uh, the Victorian Premier has actually had an interesting thing to say. So they're not all at one. He says what I describe as a better version of the way the PM should have framed it, which is that everyone should talk to their GP about getting AstraZeneca if they want. The Vic government doesn't have a problem with under 60s getting it, but it emphasises people should talk to their doctor. Yeah. It's not preferred. That's actually the truth. The problem is that the PM kind of sold it as it's available now, you know, and Jennifer, there's a flaw in that because it wasn't consistent and it was to cover the fact that, let's be blunt, and I know you've said this before too, they have absolutely cocked up the vaccine rollout. Yes, They've messed it right. up. Yes, that's right. And now we're all kind of living with the consequences of, of it. I mean, I think that we are living with the idea that we have veered between fear and complacency in this country. And, you know, I just do not want to hear anymore, and I don't think the public wants to hear anymore, how well we did last year on combating the virus, <laughs> mm. right? That, that, that's absolutely true. We, we closed the borders, etc. But we did not prepare for what life was like as vaccines became developed and or as other countries begin to open up. And that's why we had this idea that we can continue to live in this absolute virus-free state indefinitely, despite the obvious vulnerabilities and flaws, not helped by systemic failure by the state governments. Well, that's yeah. true too. That's true too. But I mean, we had all those months being virus-free where we, you got a sense of we could have been getting ready for this. We had businesses saying we want to help with the vaccine rollout, but we stuck with the GPs, but by and large, and a few mass vaccination clinics. It could have been a lot better set up. I think that's fair to say and obvious now. And it seems to me that at this moment, when the Delta variant is out and about, we do have community transmission in a number of states and territories, which we haven't had for a while. The fear element of what you said there, fear and complacency, is, um, you know, that's heating up again. People are nervous and worried. In that environment, this could have been a reassuring message. It could have been, listen, we do have this out and about. We do have enough AstraZeneca. The risks are very, very low. Um, and we are so, we're going to change the guidelines and open it up now for more people who feel who feel comfortable taking that risk. The problem was he didn't say it like that exactly and he didn't get the states on board first. He'd been speaking to them just an hour before and yet he hadn't had that conversation with him. Why not? Surely this well, could have been massaged and then it could have been presented as a cohesive, reasonable change. 
Well, I wish I could be so confident in having a conversation with the premiers would lead you to a cohesive and reasonable change. <laughs> I mean, if you if you looked at, at what Jeanette Young said, and then backed us again by Anastasia Palaszczuk, it wasn't that they hadn't just been consultant. I mean, they flat out disagree with it. And so Jeanette Young says things like, you know, you wouldn't want an 18-year-old to die from having AstraZeneca. I mean, that is scaremongering. Mm. Uh, of course it is. And of course, it, it completely ignores the alternative risks, which include, you know, greater risk of suicide by young people, the risk of spreading it on to other people for what is remains a very, very minimal risk. So mm. I think the difference of opinion amongst the premiers and uh, the federal government is so extreme and you will always have premiers and different health officers taking different advice no matter how many conversations you have. And we've been saying for so long now that we have this situation under control, right? But we've got more than half the country now in lockdown, Jennifer. So I think the best line from this podcast, I'm just going to call it as you saying, can we get over saying last year we did so well? Because (laughs) we are in the middle, we're recording this on the first day of July. We're in the middle of 2021, my friends. Seriously, last year is another country. Uh, We are living now and we have to talk about how we're dealing with this now. Now, state premiers are once again calling for a reduction in the number of international arrivals into Australia. We're overwhelmingly focusing on an elimination approach rather than learning to live with it like other countries. Singapore just announced this week, for instance, it will treat COVID-19 like any other virus once they've ramped up their vaccination drive and will act on its roadmap once a significant amount of its population is vaccinated. But we are, if you listen to the New South Wales Premier, who I think has been really transparent about what she, where she wants to get to, 80% vaccination before we can consider anything. We're so way off that, right? We are just, feels like so far away. So the Premier's want to reduce, well, two of them in particular, Queensland and Victoria, the international arrivals to manage hotel quarantine because we don't have alternatives. How is that feasible? Is that something that should be considered until we get higher rates of vaccination? No, I don't think it should be considered at all. What should be considered is, you know, yet ever more um, careful restrictions on anybody who comes into contact with international travellers. I mean, you know, we're now very familiar, of course, with the unvaccinated driver of hotel crew in New South Wales. I mean, that's just ludicrous. We're also familiar with the fact that international travellers were put in the same floor as a a guy, as a mine worker who was forced into quarantine um, from Victoria. And the unvaccinated receptionist in the Queensland Hospital and the unvaccinated student nurse in the Sydney Hospital. To be honest, you know, whether or not you've got, you know, half the number or what we've got at the moment, which is still pretty minimal coming in, you're always going to have that risk unless you've got those obvious vulnerabilities just taken care of. And, And the state governments have been unbelievably lax in that. Do you think there's an issue here? I don't mean to keep putting all the blame on the feds because obviously, you know, the the state governments are in control of these systems, but we still don't seem to have universal approaches in all the state regimes of hotel quarantine, universal rules around frontline transport workers in each state, for instance, whether they have to be vaccinated or not, whether they have to wear PPE or not. Should there be a national guideline around all of this? Well, there should be national guidelines, but as as we've seen, national cabinet was really more of a of a look Publicity rather than exercise. A, a, yeah, <laughs> yes. it was. Uh, I mean, and and that's all fine when things are working well. You but mean of Team course, Australia you know, was a charade. Well, Team Australia was a charade. Team Australia is, you know, again, easy when things kind of go well. But as soon as things go wrong, that's when we get all this kind of blame shifting. But what you are talking about is 
logical kind of common sense provisions. I mean, nobody is trying to say, look, this is easy. Of, of course, all of this should have been organised and, and it was very, very simple. It wasn't. I mean, it requires absolute mm. meticulous organisation. But the idea that you have people who are unvaccinated going around in contact, whether it's nurses or whether it's drivers, that you have hotels that are still not properly ventilated or people that are still not wearing proper, um, proper PPE over this time is absurd. At the same time, I do agree that the federal government has been inexcusably slow in trying to kind of get the idea of dedicated quarantine facilities. They were never going to be the answer. But for example, they might have been part, a lot more of the answer than, yes. than they will be now. We, we, you know, we're going to be getting, it'll be next year uh, before these are ready when they should have been done, you know, much mm. earlier. They should and have been available have been done much for, earlier. They should have been available for this year, right, after last year. There's yes. no doubt about it. Now, while we're on the topic of, you know, just talking about the sort of political sphere, Scott Morrison's response, I want to talk about something else, totally different, but I think deserves to be noted by our podcast, which is a damning revelation about the way the government's handled its car park program. Uh, an audit into their commuter car park plan by the Auditor General found $660 million was allocated for funding for new car parks, but 77% of the projects were in coalition electorates. And they say it wasn't based on merit. The 44 car parks were primarily selected by um, Morrison just before he called the 2019 election. And uh, even though Sydney needed a lot of the money, it went to Melbourne. Mm, I'm scratching scratching my head. I uh, wonder why it would have come to Melbourne. Gee, they weren't vulnerable in Melbourne, were they, Jennifer Hewitt? I mean, they weren't worried about the seats in Melbourne, were they? Well, and not only that, it went to certain parts of Melbourne. Mm. <laughs> it didn't go to parts of Western Melbourne where no. apparently the demand is is much greater. Uh, similarly, it didn't it didn't really. There was hardly any in WA where you know where the coalition held a you know great majority of the seats already, and were not particularly worried. So uh, yes, I, I mean this is a, another you know of course there'll be excuses being made, which are being made now by oh well it was within ministerial authority etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But I mean this I mean it, it really is disgraceful. The the general has made that obvious, but they're obviously going to be embarrassed by it. But because everybody's now currently so consumed uh, yes. by, by uh, COVID and what's going on there, it won't get the attention it deserves. But also, I mean, yeah, they're embarrassed on it, but they're not going to stop doing it. I mean, if they were going to stop doing it, you know, look at sports rorts. The minister who got basically sin-binned for sports rorts is now back in the cabinet, Bridget McKenzie. So, you know, these things, the government's just blowing them off. And yes, governments and both sides do this. This is not just one side of government, mm -hmm. but at the moment the coalition's in government and they say, oh, well, the guidelines allow for it. Well, that's because the guidelines are designed to allow for it because governments want to be able to have ministerial discretion to hand money out to marginal seats when they need to. And that's the problem. We should have tighter rules around the guidelines and we should have uh, a federal ICAC. Shouldn't we? Well, yes, I'm not quite sure whether a federal ICAC would get into this, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, the trouble, and I completely agree that there is too much ministerial discretion on slush funds, really, like mm -hmm. this. Which slush is what funds, it, what that's it, a great word for it what it becomes. But at the same time, we also want to allow ministerial discretion in other areas. If, if you've seen um, a lot of the outcry, for example, 
to bring it back to COVID, which is, you know, I, I understand a kind of slightly different issue, but people go, oh, no, well, the ministers will say, oh, well, it wasn't our decision to follow, to allow people not to attend their father's funeral or not to go to people in yeah. hospital. You know, we have to be at arm's length. So you kind of, and everybody said, well, that's ridiculous. You you, you should have more discretion. So And the same I, I goes for refugees, it, I suppose, with the Bill yes. Wheeler family. We're all yeah. saying the minister should use their discretion. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, all I'm, this is a particularly egregious example, I think, of pork barrelling. But it's it, you can't just be black and white, and must all everything must be decided by you know at arm's length or, or by bureaucrats. Jen, or as always, your brain is excellent to pick. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on the podcast. A pleasure. Thanks so much, Jen. Great to have you on the party room, and enjoy your freedom. Thanks very much. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Gemma, who has left us a voicemail note. Here she is. In your experience, how important is legacy to Prime Ministers? Is it always the case that a particular policy or program becomes like the centrepiece of a Prime Minister's reign? And if so, is that even a good strategy to try and come in with a big sweeping change? Because as we've seen, um, the collapse of a big grand policy often leads to a bit of a Ides of March, Julius Caesar type situation. Thanks again. Uh, I do think they like to have something that uh, is, a, is a legacy that they leave. Absolutely. that's. And if you think about you know, previous Prime Ministers, I'm thinking Julia Gillard, for instance, I think, you know, her legacy, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, for instance, those kinds of really important key reforms that people remember from their Prime Ministers. And that kind of defines their time in office. I think that if I can make it a contemporary comment on the current Prime Minister, part of the issue of the last election campaign, which we've discussed extensively on this podcast, Fran, is that there was nothing, right? There was no legacy. And in fact, I think the pandemic is the only thing that will probably define this Prime Minister um, and the way he's responded to this pandemic. I cannot think of another single reform that he has suggested... Um, and reform is implied to be good. Sometimes reforms can be bad, but, you know, positive reforms. I cannot think of anything that defines him. And yet previous prime ministers have had more definitive moments and they do want them. But I think for this prime minister, it's going to be how he's handled this pandemic. Well, that's true so far, though. He's only a few years into his prime ministership, so I guess he's got time. Um, well, he would hope he well, would he have. if he wins the election. That's right. I think he's planning on being there for a while, but, you know, that's up to the Australian people. Thanks for your question, Gemma. I don't know that prime ministers come in thinking they want to leave a legacy. I mean, I think they come in thinking, you know, they're here to, to do a job to make change, to improve things for the country, and different prime ministers at different times have different versions of that. Paul Keating had superannuation reforms, as it turned out in the end. But he also did the, um, you know, his interpretation of the, the Mabo ruling of the High Court and the native title legislation. You know, they want to get things done. The, the prime ministers that are judged by history to be the best are the ones that get things done. Bob Hawke had the accord and that really changed the way the economy ran. And, and he and Paul Keating made a lot of changes to the economy. These are legacy changes that set us up for, you know, 26 years of positive growth. John Howard, in his second term, introduced the G. GST. That was hard. It cost him a lot of votes, but he thought it would 
you know, modernise the economy and it's undeniably true. Where they get into trouble, I think, is where they have a big defining idea like Kevin Rudd had the CPRS, the Climate Change Carbon Tax Bill. He called climate change the defining issue of our generation and then he dropped it because mm. he could see that he wasn't going to get it, you know, he didn't get the, uh, the first version through the parliament and then he could see it wasn't necessarily going to be a winner at the election or that seemed to be the atmospherics around it. So or whatever the reasons were, he moved off it after the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. And he was judged for that. The voters voted him down for that because, marked him down for that, I think, because they didn't think he was holding true to his commitments and therefore they started to doubt all the things that he'd been telling them. So I think they can get judged for, for moving off their big issues. But I think by and large... We judge our prime ministers by the shape they leave the nation in and a lot of that comes down to the big landmark reforms they make. And yes, they like that, but we like it too, I think. We like it too when it positively changes our lives. Yeah. Parental leave, uh, big reforms. and Gay marriage. Yeah, but if you look at what potential reforms we could see, wouldn't it be great to see the Prime Minister get behind the Uluru Statement from the heart and change our constitution to actually allow Indigenous people to have a voice? That sort of thing, I think, would um, leave a great legacy for him and for the nation. So, you know... Yeah, of, and, and it's not just us there. saying it. I mean, there's plenty of you know big policy thinkers who've been around for, for decades basically observing that governments in Australia at the moment, not just this government, but the past few, are pretty light on on big reforms. I think the phrase is they don't have much appetite for it because the politics of it in this current climate, which includes the media cycle and a whole lot of elements, is really just not there at the moment. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And don't forget to follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listener app or your favourite podcast app. Well, that's it for The Party Room for this week and what a big week it's been. Uh, don't forget, always just talk to your doctor. Don't listen to politicians. Yep, shamozzle is the word of the week, I think, PK. See ya. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.